0: Good evening, LCM. Good evening. This evening we are covering Acts chapter 1. All right. My father is currently traveling between the churches of the one association and working hard to make sure that the many facets of vision given to the churches are understood as they actually are. One vision with one purpose. Alleluia. After having fruitful days with our brothers at King's Harvest Church, he is now laboring alongside our family at Remnant Church. We want you to know that even when our Foundations team is spread out, we -hmm. still study together. When a team is formed properly, then distances and even time zones do not create spiritual distances between Mm -hmm. the members Mm -hmm. of the team. We are pleased to say that this evening will be filled with new revelation insight into the plan of God, and practical applications for us during our time offending the Vulcan and These are unparalleled days, and it is a privilege for each of us to be given the opportunity to participate in them. So as we begin,
1: there are a few key points of review that we want to cover before jumping into our text tonight. Right. The first being key to your understanding That the book of Acts is part of a larger whole. Take a look at this next slide. Two scrolls, one work. So you'll remember from last week that the gospel of Luke is 24 chapters, 1151 verses, and roughly 26,000 words. Mm. The book of Acts is 28 chapters, about 1,000 verses, and roughly 24,000 words. So to quote Bruce Metzger, the normal Greek literary scroll seldom exceeded 35 feet in length. Ancient authors would therefore divide a long literary work into several books, each of which could be accommodated into one scroll. The Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts would each have filled an ordinary papyrus roll of 31 or 32 feet in length. Doubtless, this is one of the reasons why Luke Acts was issued in two volumes instead of one. So
2: this was insightful to us for many reasons. First of all, it's obvious that Acts is a continuation of the purpose and the themes of the Gospel of Luke. Secondly, in our time, believers often miss key concepts that are connected through many works, precisely because they have been taught to dissect the Word of God rather than see the obvious connections throughout the Word of God. In these days where we are each working so hard to be faithful to the revelation given to the churches, it is becoming apparent that we are actually all working towards one coordinated plan. Somebody say coordinated plan. Coordinated plan. To reverse the road from Rome to Jerusalem and see the nations fall in love with the Jewish king and Messiah. Yeah. Yeah. Understanding that the two scrolls are actually one work is for us deeply revelatory on many levels. Yeah. Mm.
3: So let's move to another facet in our review that aids in our understanding of the book of Acts. And we have a slide for you. John sixteen <coughs> thirteen through 14. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit draw- never draws attention to himself, but rather moves to exalt the Son. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of Jesus. And we see those references there. This is how the word of Jesus can be fulfilled when he said, As surely as I, I am with you to the very end of the age.
2: Has any of you Have any of you guys ever thought about that? Like, how in the world did Jesus actually fulfill Matthew 28, verse 20? Right, yes. How in the world could he be with them until the very end of the age? Well... If the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Holiness, is the Spirit of Jesus Christ, then he fulfilled his word perfectly. And we're going to see that in Acts chapter 1.
3: Yeah. So Luke was the record of all that Jesus began to do and teach. In other words, the actions of Jesus. The book of Acts is the record of all that Jesus began to do and teach through his body on earth as he fulfilled the Great Commission. Do you guys remember that from last week? Yes. So Acts could be called the actions of Jesus through his body on earth. ...as empowered by his spirit. And Jesus is the superstar of the book of Acts. Oh, there it is.
0: So, saints, this truth seems obvious after it has been pointed out. That's true. And we spend 45 minutes working through it together. But the truth is that we often make the mistake, this same mistake in many areas of the scripture. So, when we see the manifestations of the agency of God on earth through men like Moses, Elijah... Nehemiah, or even the Apostles. It is easy for us to forget that all 66 books highlight the Messiah as the intended superstar. The reason that the Messiah is always the intended superstar is that the Bible is a continuous narrative concerning the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth under the administration of Messiah. The entire Bible is on that subject. Unfortunately, in our Hellenistic setting, this concept of an earthly kingdom that originated in heaven has been greatly diminished. (laughs) In our studies on the book of Acts, you will again become acquainted with the biblical truth that the kingdom of God is coming to the earth under the administration of Messiah. The Jewish people have always been the custodians of this truth. (laughs) And the book of Acts documents the expansion of the kingship of Messiah and the expansion of his influence into the nation through his body as empowered by his spirit. we want to look at another slide with you that is regarding the opening and closing words of the book of Acts.
1: So when we see the opening and closing of a book, we can pretty much know what the whole of the book is about. Mm-hmm. This slide is entitled, The Kingdom of God, yep. Acts 1, 2 through 2-3. On. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit... To the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. The book ends in Acts 28, 30 through 31. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ With all boldness and without hindrance. Now, it is not necessary for us to go back through all of the references from last week as we want to cover the text of chapter 1 tonight. That's right. However, both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are thoroughly kingdom centric. The kingdom being discussed is a kingdom that has been established in the midst of Gentile empires presently and. It will overthrow every national power on earth in a sudden and climactic conclusion to history as we know it. The kingdom of God is now, but we will be more obviously and undeniably present in a physical sense at the return of Jesus and the overthrow of the Gentile empires. Now last week we gave you seven progress reports that illustrate the expansion of the kingdom And the Messiah into the nations. After that, we detailed seven statements that revealed that the early believing community was not a new religion or a new hope for humanity. The truth is that they were the way that Adonai had been forecasting from the beginning of the scriptures, the way that his kingdom would be established on earth. And we could go through all seven of those way slides that we
2: presented last week. But the truth is, is that the seventh slide that we presented is the perfection of all seven examples. We're going to review that together. The way number seven is found in Acts 24, verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect. uh, We've heard that before, haven't we? Oh, yeah. I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. So clearly, the early believers did not see themselves as as establishing a new religion or a new hope of any kind. It is apparent that members of the way were only viewed as a sect by men who had strayed from the original hope for Israel and for all mankind. The early community is a continuation of all that was laid down in the law and all that was written in the prophets. The message is quite clear. The early believers were the true manifestation of all that Judaism was intended to be and bring about on the earth. They were not new. No, they were a renewal of the original expressed intentions of God regarding his kingdom's establishment on the earth.
3: Yeah. So as you look at this next slide, remember that every one of these people mentioned are Jews. In Genesis 5.22, Enoch did what with God? Walked. Genesis 48.15, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob walked with God. Leviticus 26.12, Adonai promised to walk walk among Israel. Deuteronomy 5.23, all Israel is commanded to Walk in the way. way. And then Acts 1, 1 through 3. In the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do do and teach. teach. And then speaking about the kingdom of God. Judaism was always intended to be expressed through action. Say action. 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 Like walking in a manner that anticipates the physical kingdom of God's establishment on earth. Come on. Men like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they exemplified this truth. Yeah, of course, every one of Messiah's actions exemplifies this reality to the fullest form. Members of the early believing community called, what was it called? The way. The way. The way. They were not a new religion or the expression of a different hope than that of the patriarchs. Amen. Yeah. They were the newly appointed custodians of an ancient truth. Come yeah, on. So this next slide will expand that concept. It's titled,
0: Kingdom Taken." Matthew 21, verse 43 says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. You can see the text beneath it. I'm going to read it to you. This statement was made to the chief priests and the Pharisees. Where most present-day believers get confused is in thinking that this statement refers to taking the kingdom from Israel. (laughs) That idea is patently false and unbiblical. The custodians of the way to the kingdom were being changed from the present Jewish leadership to new Jewish leadership, i.e. every one of the apostles who were all Jews. The hope has not changed and the people group has not changed, although it has been expanded to also include Gentiles. The older, stagnant, and unbelieving leadership was replaced by 12 Jewish apostles that were the foundation and the custodians of the way. The way that God was bringing his promised kingdom to Israel and to the earth through. The name that they called themselves was most likely taken from the writings of the Hebrew prophet Isaiah.
1: As you're looking at this next slide, the way and the teacher in Isaiah 30, 20 through 21. Although the Lord has given you bread of privation and water of oppression... He, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it whenever you turn to the right or to the left. Now this was not a new promise, but an ancient one, dating back to Isaiah's time. It's one that had been manifested in the lives of the Jewish men, that walked and talked with Messiah as they talked about the kingdom of God and the promises given to Israel. Our next slide was also taken from the writings
2: of the Jewish prophet Isaiah, and it puts a razor-sharp edge on the point that the name The Way is supposed to communicate. The slide is entitled Walking, The Way, and Isaiah 35. Here are some excerpts from that chapter. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. And a highway will be there, it will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. And the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. The way in which Adonai would bring about his kingdom on earth was entrusted to the Jewish nation. However, wicked fools would not be allowed to lead this movement. The promise of the kingdom was never taken from Israel. It was instead entrusted to Jewish men who actually walked in the way as they were instructed by the Messiah and King of Israel. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So remembering that Luke Acts is one collective work separated into two scrolls. Consider the importance of this next statement on our slide titled Kingdom Transferred. This is from Luke twenty two, twenty eight through thirty. It says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my father has assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So the twelve Jewish men that stood in the roles of apostles were entrusted as custodians of the way that God would bring about Of the way that God would bring about his kingdom on earth. Are you following that? The previous Jewish leadership was rejected specifically for their resistance to the spirit of holiness. And their rejection of the Jewish Messiah. And you'll see how Stephen explicitly makes this point when we get to Acts chapter 7.
0: You see Luke 22 on the screen. I want to show you how Luke made this point early on in his gospel. This is Luke 7, 29-30 that I'm going to read to you. All the people, even the tax collectors, mm. when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right mm. because they had been baptized by John. you hear the phrasing, all the people? Yes. We're speaking yeah, yeah. about the vast majority of the population, even those who are tax collectors. Wow. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves. Wow because they had not been baptized by John. Wow. The point is clear. There was a transfer of leadership from Jewish leaders who would not repent to those Jewish men who did repent wow. and who were chosen as the leadership of the way. That's good. That's now, good. these
1: men who were chosen as the leadership of the way, <coughs> the 12 men, well, they would still need to be instructed. Yes. And Luke records hundreds of instances ...where that is occurring. But let's focus on the end of the first scroll... ...that is the Gospel of Luke... ...as we then transition to the beginning of the second scroll... ...that is the Book of Acts. So let's look at something we see... ...here in the last chapter of Luke. We see a growing understanding of the Scriptures. Luke 24, 27 says... ...in beginning with Moses and all the prophets... ...he, being Jesus... Explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself.
0: And I wish we had that string.
1: (laughs) Check out uh, verse 32. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us? While he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. Let's look at 44 through 45. He said to them. This is what I told you while I was still with you. He's speaking to the 11 apostles now. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. You see, the Gospel of Luke focuses on the kingdom. And the book of Acts does as well because they're one work. The closing of Luke's first scroll emphasizes that even the new leadership was growing in their understanding of how the kingdom would be expanded into the nations as well as the kingdom's final restoration to Israel. It's going to become clear to you that in the gospel, Jesus is seen giving commands through the Holy Spirit that clarify the practice of Adonai's word. Additionally, it will be equally clear to you that in the book of Acts, the spirit of Jesus is seen as continuing to instruct his body on earth to clarify the practice of Adonai's word.
2: Now, this setting may engender two seemingly opposite reactions in this room. First, it is frightening to realize that even the 12 apostles had to grow in their own understanding of the kingdom,
4: yeah.
2: in their understanding of its expansion and its final manifestation. If they had to grow, what does that mean for us? Oh, we got to grow. On the other hand, it is also inspiring that we have a window into the process of their understanding that indeed grew. The book of Acts will walk us through the process as the early community put feet to their own trust in Messiah. How exhilarating is it to study the actions of those OG men of God? And we want to be absolutely clear with you from the onset of this teaching. We are receiving our own call to action as we follow the journey of the early community from Jerusalem to Rome. We will see their progressive revelation that accompanied every faith-filled step. And then we're going to imitate both their faith yeah. as yeah. well as their understanding oh, as
3: we reverse the road from Rome all the way back to Jerusalem. Amen. Amen. So as we pray, take note. Some understanding only comes when you are already moving in faith-filled action. Perhaps you might have the courage to focus on what we do and then seek teaching that informs our increasing experience. Are you ready for Acts chapter 1? Yes. yes. Well, it seems fitting that we have our beloved elder, Baj, stand and pray for us as we engage the word of God.
5: Oh. Yeah. Father, we praise your name in this house tonight, Lord. Father, we give you the highest praise, Lord, because you are the one and only true God of Israel. Father, we pray tonight that you would open the scriptures up for us, Lord. That you would show us, Father, and lead us through this study tonight, Lord, we would see your heart and what is taught tonight, mighty God. Father, would you be with our team that is teaching tonight? Help them, Father, to teach the way that you want it to be
1: presented. Yes, Amen. We give you praise and yes, we give you glory, Lord. Yes. Open our minds Lord, and our hearts yes. and our mouths yes. for your word in Jesus' name.
3: Amen. 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 You want to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1 and cast away the homiletic blade? Pick up us.
6: Come on. No. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. And spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command: "Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which ye have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days he will be baptized with the Holy Spirit." So when they met together, they asked him, "Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel?" He said to them, "It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority." But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. A Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines filled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language Akodama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must be a witness, I'm sorry, must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph, called Bar also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belonged. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles.
0: Well, this is uh, certainly one of the most beloved chapters in communities like ours. I guarantee you this evening you're going to hear concepts that you heard as a child expanded. I guarantee you will hear concepts that you've never heard before. If you can give us your attention, we're going to move at a steady pace but we're going to dive into the sections that we need to so that we walk away with something new beyond what we walked in with. Come on. Amen. Amen. Brother Linton, are you reading verse by verse for us tonight? Verse by verse. Get verse 1 and 2 for me. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about
5: all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen.
0: Over the last few weeks, we have all noted the importance of the ordering of the opening line of Acts. What Jesus did is pointed out prior to what he taught. Suffice it to say, all ministries would be benefited by prioritizing things in this manner. What you do, then what you teach. Another practical thought that we would like to draw to your attention concerns the wording of verse 2. Jesus gave instructions through the Holy Spirit. And this is particularly useful when considering what Jesus is being the word of God himself. Mm-hmm. Revelation 19 verse 13 speaks to this concept. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. Yeah. Thanks. This is not just a title. But it also indicates the very substance of what Jesus is according to the gospel of John.
1: John 1 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled amongst us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So what we're seeing here is that the, the word of God is seen in the book of Acts as giving instruction through the Holy Spirit. Y'all catching that? The Word of God, which is Jesus, is giving instruction through the Holy Spirit. This is important when avoiding errors in the practice of our faith. Mm-hmm. The Word of God, who is Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Jesus, are never in conflict with one another. Amen. Amen. Any attempt to emphasize one over or without the other results in grievous error. In light of that, listen to Mark twelve twenty four.
2: Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? Come on, Guys, we're going to keep moving through our text tonight because we have a lot to discuss and cover with you. But every serious Bible student must pay careful attention to the agreement between the word of God and the spirit of God. Or else the result will be the kind of error that was prevalent, listen, in the leadership from whom Jesus took the kingdom.
4: Wow.
3: There's at least one aspect of what Jesus said in verse 2 that we would like to draw your attention to prior to moving on. Let's read verse 2 again uh, together. It says, Until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, He had chosen notice that the apostles were the men that he had chosen say chosen chosen. Chosen. They were not voted in and they did not aspire to the office or choose it for themselves. In light of that, look at Hebrews chapter five, Hebrews five, picking up in verse one, every high priest
0: is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. Verse 4, no one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God just as Aaron was. When Adonai established his government, whether speaking about establishing a high priest or an official, the men who fill the offices are chosen by him and him being Adonai. The men who fill those offices did not and could not choose to be in that position on their own. Mm -hmm. The twelve apostles were personally chosen by Jesus to be the foundation of his government. Mm -hmm. If a man is unwilling to trust and follow Adonai in the discharge of the duties of the office that was appointed to him, then the Lord reserves the right to remove and replace that man with someone who will fulfill the purpose of the office. Yeah, wow. This is true throughout the biblical narrative, as seen with examples like Saul and David that everyone knows, and an entire generation of Israelites in the desert who would not enter the promised land, but their children did who were willing. So let's visit the words of Jesus to the twelve about their appointment. In John
1: 15. Mm. You guys ready for John 15:16? Oh, yeah. This is going to get good. Verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. Now can you imagine the pressure and concern <coughs> that it could cause to be given the task of leading the community that brings about God's kingdom oh, yeah. on Earth?: Yes. 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 <laughs> I bet you can. <laughs> we are Ironically, Jesus made the statement recorded in John 15:16, to alleviate the pressure. Oh, wow. He is their Messiah, but he is also their rabbi. In the first century. Rabbis only chose students who had the ability to be like their teacher. What Jesus was saying to them was actually intended to alleviate performance anxiety. Hallelujah. He's saying, I chose you because I know that you can carry out my commands on the earth. Yes. Are there any men in the room that are called of God and yes. struggle with the weight yes. of the Do you have periods of faithlessness regarding your ability? (laughs) Or even embedded fears about your inadequacy? Well, we're asking because we have good news for you tonight. And it's found in Mark 3.13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted.
2: And they came to him. (laughs) While men in every generation have had these kinds of struggles... We should all be comforted in the midst of these battles as we remember that the choosing was for the purpose of being with Jesus. Come on mm. For those of us who were chosen and who also battle with our own inadequacy, the comforting thing is that He chose us so that we would be with Him. Oh, man. Oh, man. Maybe it is even more amazing to think on Matthew 28:21, because it promises both the apostles and us. That he will be with us unto the end of the age through his spirit of holiness. Hallelujah,
0: yeah. Amen. This
2: means that <laughs> yeah. all oh, governance yeah. simply occurs through his word and through his spirit. Both of who are with us <laughs> at all times. Amen. Guys, if there is any pressure at all, it is that we must immediately repent when we have stepped outside of his word and his spirit. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The failure to repent when outside of the will of God, evidenced in his word and spirit, is the exact thing that brought the Jewish leadership of Jesus' day, as well as Judas Iscariot himself, to a place where the kingdom was taken away from them. Wow! You guys ready to go into verse 3? Yeah. Oh, yeah.
5: Yeah. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke
3: about the kingdom of God. Now this verse says more than you thought it did. (laughs) On the subject of convincing proofs, it's important to know that we are talking about more than Jesus simply being alive. The fact is that Luke records other similar statements about Jesus. So let's look at one of those. This is Luke 24, verse 19. And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed, and word before God and all the people. Now it would seem that every action of Jesus was a convincing proof that he was exactly what he claimed to be, the Son of God. Jesus was able to say, If you don't believe me, then believe the works that I do. Apparently, men on the road to Emmaus were convinced that Jesus was a prophet. But they initially fell short of belief uh, that he was the Son of God. However, during the 40 days of post-resurrection appearances, Jesus solved that problem. Yeah, he did. <laughs> the fact of him being alive, although he had been killed, was exactly the kind of convincing proof that caused the early community to be so certain that Jesus was the Son of God. That they they... They would actually die, give their life to proclaim that truth. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Now, we are bringing this up because the establishment of the kingdom of God is not a matter of just talking, mm. but of powerful deeds done by relying on the word and the spirit of God. Ooh, come oh. on. Consider Paul's
0: statement on this in First Corinthians
3: chapter 4, verse 20. Yeah. For
0: the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Yeah, come yeah. mm-hmm. on. I love how plainly he puts that. Yeah. The unfortunate truth is that many ministries rely solely on their own teachings, Mm -hmm. and all the while there is a shocking lack of their doings. Yes. (laughs) Jesus was not like that. Nope. He did, and then he taught. Perhaps the reason there is such reliance on intellectualism in the church world is precisely because there is such a deficiency of their action or their doings. Right. Wow. Our hope is that you take note of the constant demonstration of the kingdom that Jesus and the members of his body put on display. This should be our goal, and we should be able to say, along with Paul, his next statement in 2 Corinthians.
1: This is 2 Corinthians 12, 5-6. I will not boast about a man like that. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. The study of this book is our call to action. We will not be revered for teaching while simultaneously displaying a shocking lack of deeds. That would be a mockery to the early community in whose footsteps we are following. Jesus appeared for 40 days, giving many convincing proofs that he was alive. We are called to give many convincing proofs that actually prove what we are confessing with our mouths. We believe we are resurrected in Christ. Well, it is our job to prove that by our actions.
4: Yes.
2: In order to understand the significance of the time period that Jesus spent giving them many convincing proofs, it is necessary to understand the feast schedule of Israel and the timing of all of these events. You guys are going to recognize this slide. This is a slide of the seven feasts of Israel. This is the feast schedule. We had a good time putting this one together. Guys, If while you're looking at that slide, a couple truths that you're going to need to know moving forward, and we're going to help to walk you through this and explain it to you more in depth. But on a surface level, you need to know that Jesus was crucified on Passover during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Secondly, His resurrection occurred on the Sabbath that occurred after Passover. Thirdly, the Feast of Pentecost comes 50 days after the Feast of first fruits. These details might not be completely revelatory to you just yet, but when you understand the historical pattern that was laid down in the Torah, the whole picture is going to come together for you. You guys ready to get a
3: revelation here?
4: Yeah.
2: Yes.
3: Okay. Let's take a look at a couple commentaries. This one comes from David Stern in the Jewish New Testament commentary. He says Israelites came to the foot of Mount Sinai in the third month. From this and other biblical data, the rabbis deduce that God actually gave the Torah on Shavuot. The theme of Shavuot is revelation. The Jewish nation killed a lamb on the original Passover while in Egypt. They left Egypt and came to Sinai where they received the Torah on the 50th day of their journey.
0: Before we proceed to the next slide, I want to make sure we're on the same page. Shavuot is a Hebrew version of Pentecost. Hebrew would actually be the right way to say it. Pentecost is a Greek version. But that day, according to David Stern, the theme of it, It's revelation. The reason why, which Peyton just told you, is that after leaving Egypt, coming to Sinai, they received the Torah on that day, the 50th day of their journey. Phineas Day has a slide that we're going to show you now. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read the entire thing, although (laughs) it will be published in our notes, and you feel free to read it. But his conclusions are given here. The law was given on Pentecost, and you can see the outlines at the very bottom here. These three days were the third, fourth, and fifth on the third month. The 46 days, the day in the mouth. And the three days of sanctification made 50 days. The 50th being the day the law was given. So why is this significant? You need to understand that the Jewish nation was promised that they would become a kingdom of priests yeah. during this time frame when they received revelation from heaven.
1: So let's take a look at Exodus 19.6, which, by the way, occurs during the time when the law was given at Sinai during Shavuot. In verse 6 says, You will be, for me, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. The precise day where Adonai made good on this promise to visit them with his transforming through Torah, was Pentecost. We want to give you a description of that given in Exodus 19, 16 through 17. So a few
2: verses later, here's the description.
1: On the morning of the third day,
2: there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain (coughs) and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. So note the thunders that are present here, the lightnings, note the thick cloud, how all these things were audible and visible signs that Adonai himself was visiting with the people. The trumpet blasts were a sign that God was meeting with his nation. Guys, look at the way Moses described it in the retelling that's contained in Deuteronomy chapter 4.
3: Yeah, so this is Deuteronomy 4, 11 through 12. And it says, And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven,
4: Amen.
3: wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire, You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. The entire Jewish nation experienced a theophany of God appearing through his word to them at Mount Sinai. And it was exactly 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. Are you following us? Yep. So now
0: we're going to compare our timeline as laid out in Acts and help put some of this together. You can see on the slide, day one, Jesus gave many convincing proofs all the way up to day 40. Then we have a 10-day period of prayer and obedience to the commands. So it's clear, Jesus spent that 40-day window giving these convincing proofs that he was alive, that he was resurrected, and that he was the rightful king of the kingdom of God. The new Jewish leadership then spent the remaining 10 days in prayer and obedience to his commands, Before, Adonai gave them another theophany at Pentecost with visible and audible sounds as he gave them his spirit and confirmed that they were the kingdom of priests that had been anticipated since Exodus 19. We will teach on the Feast of Shavuot or Pentecost more next week when we get to Acts chapter 2. For now, think of those 40 days as convincing proofs that the new Jewish leadership was, in fact, establishing a kingdom of priests on the earth. It is commonly assumed that every reference in 40 in the Bible implies testing. In this case, it is more of a comforting preparation. If anything is to be viewed as testing, it is the 10 days between Jesus' ascension and the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost on the 50th day. So consider 1 Corinthians 15.6.
1: After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So if Jesus appeared to more than 500 people during the period of 40 days that he gave many convincing proofs, why are there only 120 people in the upper room in Acts 115? It would appear that 380 men did not devote themselves to the faith-filled action that was displayed, that displayed anticipation of the coming kingdom at Pentecost. We're going to come back to that as we get to verse 15. But for now, we want you to note how amazing it is that Adonai works out everything in his sovereignty. It is also incredibly important that we see this book as our call to action and display convincing proofs that the kingdom is a reality on and coming to the earth. Amen. You guys want to keep moving into the text?
4: Yeah. yeah.
1: Let's get verse 4 and 5.
5: On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit.
2: There's always been a great deal of controversy surrounding the phrase, Baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is because. And hear me on this. Many men. Like just like the 380 men. That weren't there. On this day that should have been. Many men like that. Just aren't willing to wait in Jerusalem. For this manifestation. Of the kingdom of God. When you understand that. Both Luke and Acts. Are one work. Separated into two scrolls there suddenly becomes no misunderstanding about this Luke's gospel clearly displays the Apostles as present believers who were told to wait in Jerusalem before they were supposed to go to the nations they were told to wait because something specific was going to happen we're going to read it in Luke 24 verse
3: 45 yeah Luke 24 45 through 49. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, nations. beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witness of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So since the same author is referring to the same event utilizing two scrolls, it should be fairly evident that the baptism of the Holy Spirit written about in Acts is the clothing of power from on high written about in Luke. Now the apostles were already believers who saw the suffering of the Christ and his resurrection on the third day. They had already been commissioned to preach repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations, starting where? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. They were declared to be witnesses of these things, but they were told to wait until they were clothed with power or baptized in the Holy Spirit. The event that they anticipated was not regeneration or even their first interaction with the Holy Spirit. You remember in John twenty twenty two, it records them receiving the Holy Spirit that Luke records as opening their mind to the Scripture. When they repented and believed in the gospel record, they received the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, just as all believers do. Well, why don't we take Titus 3, verse 5 on this
0: subject. He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth in renewal by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. The point is that the apostles were already saved believers with the renewal of the Spirit and washing of rebirth experience. However, they were told that they must wait for a clothing with power from on high or baptism in the Holy Spirit. Those are the synonymous terms describing the same event before they could effectively give convincing proof or witness to all of the nations of the world, beginning in Jerusalem. This is because the Lord chooses to testify to the presence of His kingdom in some very specific ways, as noted in Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Verse 3. How
1: shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So this baptism in the Spirit, or clothing with power from on high, is for all believers and is subsequent to salvation, after salvation. The gifts that manifest as a result of this clothing with power are a testament and they are a convincing proof that the kingdom of God is here and is coming in power. As we go through the book of Acts, you will be able to document this experience from the beginning of the book through the ending. And it is always for men who are presently believers. They're already believers but there's another experience subsequent to their salvation yes. that God has for them. Yes. Now, the reason that we are laying this out now is that much of the church world. Hear me. Much of the church world maintains the unscriptural assertion that all believers receive all of the Holy Spirit in their salvation experience. Ooh. However, the clear historical record record of Acts displays a second blessing in the Spirit that is a clothing with power from on high. Every believer should desire this kind of faith-filled action demonstrating itself in power. Now, Since, Since we are going to illustrate the clear historical pattern of the baptism in the Holy Spirit as displayed in Acts during the coming weeks, we will keep moving through our text tonight and leave the further development of that truth to another evening. <laughs> so let's pick up and read 6 and 7.
5: So when they met together they asked him, "Lord, are you going at, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel?" He said to them, "It is not for you to know the times or dates <laughs> the Father has sent by his own authority."
2: So in the anticipation of the coming theophany at Pentecost, the apostles immediately asked about the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. This clearly shows their hope continued to be the same as all of the righteous Jews that came before them. They were awaiting the establishment of God's kingdom, not in some other place, but on the earth, and Israel's physical possession of that kingdom. Please take note that there is no hint of if the kingdom would be restored to Israel. That's not the question here. The only thing in question was the timing of the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. It's not a matter of if, guys. Jesus affirms that event has been set by the authority of the Father, but does not indicate the exact timing. This question continued to be on the minds of believers and is displayed even in the book of Thessalonians, where the exact same Greek words appear in the phrase times or dates.
3: Alright, let's take 1 Thessalonians 5 1-2 through 2. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers you have no need to have anything written to you. There it is. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Will come, baby. 1 and 2 Thessalonians, in many ways, constitutes Paul's commentary on the book of Daniel, as well as his practical applications for the believing community as they awaited the coming kingdom of God in its full and undeniable form. This evening, it's not within our purview to survey all of those connections, but you should be aware that the words times and seasons conceptually carry over through the Tanakh into the Newer Testament, and they relate to the appointed time for the destruction of the fourth Gentile beastly power and the establishment of the kingdom of God. Additionally, there are only two instances where Kronos, if you're making notes, Kronos, Strong's number, G5550, or 5550, or 5550, and Kairos, Strong's number, 2540. These two words, it's the only two times that these two words appear in a series within the Newer Testament. And those two instances are Acts 1, verse 7, and here in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. The clear import from the text is that the believing community was fully aware and had no need to have anything written regarding the certainty, say certainty, certainty. Certainty. of the day of the Lord which would come and usher in the kingdom of God in its fullest form. The usage of the same exact Greek words is intended to make a connection between the question of the apostles where they ask, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Paul's definitive statement that the day of the Lord will come. It's important to realize that
0: Acts 1... Verse 12 lets us know that the discussions about the restoration of Israel in the end of the age between the apostles and Jesus are taking place on the Mount of Olives. So verse 12 lets you know that's where all of this discussion has been happening. This is important because this is not the first time that they've asked Jesus about this subject at the very same location. (laughs) We're going to read Matthew 24, verse 3 together. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So here in Matthew, prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus, the apostles are asking for Jesus to tell them about the signs of Jesus coming and the end of the age. This is because there was and continued to be an eager expectation for the restoration of Israel in a fully manifested kingdom of God on earth. The instruction that Jesus goes on to give in verses 12 through 14 are insightful as it relates to the process that must take place beforehand.
1: Mm. Verse 12 through 14 in Matthew 24. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So in Acts 1, the apostles are once again on the Mount of Olives with Jesus. And they're asking him the same questions. But this time, Jesus, sta- Jesus is standing there glorified... And he's reminding them of the promise that they would be clothed in power. Or, said another way, baptized in the Holy Spirit. Their minds, while this conversation is going on in Acts 1, their minds would have inevitably drifted back to the words he spoke to them the last time they were in this location, which was Matthew 24. Now, seeing Jesus in glorified form and having conquered death, they are understandably wondering if the kingdom will be initiated now. Mm. Like we heard what you said in Matthew 24, but but you were resurrected.
4: Yeah.
1: You were dead. Now you're alive. Will this happen now? However, they are about to hear Jesus reaffirm that the times and dates for the completion of these things are set by the Father's own authority. After Jesus gave his reaffirming statement that the Father has set the times, Jesus goes on to tell the apostles that the beginning of the process of the gospel of the kingdom reaching all nations would begin with them. So they're asking, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom? And he says, hey, the gospel is going to go out to all the nations. Mm -hmm. The point is that the restoration of Israel has always been a certainty. And it is not a question of if, But of when these things will occur. The apostles are currently learning more about the process that leads up to the end of the age. Before we move on to verse 7.
2: We have a couple of slides to remind you of the sovereignty of God in the midst of the whole process. Check out Daniel's narrative. Just a couple passages that we picked from this book. Daniel 2.20. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. What? He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Daniel 7.11, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Only God the Father can do that. Interesting. Daniel 7 21. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, yeah. and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High.
3: And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Come on. Hi. So there are two clear points through the narrative of Daniel that should be understood as we interact with the coming verses and acts. The first is that Adonai is the one in control of the kings and kingdoms of this world. And he is displayed as raising them up or deposing them according to his will. This is done to ensure that his divine plan comes to pass as he has ordained it. The second point is that the refinement of his people Israel... And the establishment of them as head of all nations is always the focal point. Yes. The question has never been if he would restore the kingdom of Israel, but always when he would restore the kingdom to Israel.
0: So while you have this in mind, and again, Justin iterated it earlier. They asked in Matthew 24 on the mountain of Olives, is this the time? And they realized it wasn't. <laughs> Now they're staring at a glorified son of David before them. The one whom they know is the guy Daniel 7 was talking about. The reasonable question. Are you going to usher in the kingdom? But of course the book of Acts is a call to action. And they are learning that they have work to do to bring that about. So while you're thinking about the work that they had ahead of them, I want to visit a slide with you that we've covered in the past about the patriarchs. This gives you an idea of the certainty of the process that God is bringing Israel through and will complete in Mm them. So again, there is no if, it is only when. The history of Israel's patriarchs is informative when considering the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. First off, Adonai predestined Abraham to become a blessing to the whole planet long before he could even have children. The timing of the fulfillment wasn't known to Abraham. The only thing Abraham knew was the character of his God, and he had to keep obeying him. Isaac, his son, he's the promised son, called forth from barrenness to fulfill the promise of God. And yet it looked as if Isaac would be sacrificed and gone. Again, and in every uncomfortable turn, these men did not know the times or the dates that their promises would be fulfilled. (laughs) They just knew the character of their God. Amen. Jacob, Jacob was justified by his trust in Adonai, and he became Israel. He got a name change. And yet his life was full of ups and downs, of mistreatment, and even the mistreating of others. The timing of the promises were never certain, but the character of God who made those promises was always certain. Amen. Now Joseph, he's an excellent example. He was rejected by his brothers. But glorified through elevation into the highest office in the known world. Even the Egyptians referred to him as their savior, Zaphinof Panea. And remember, Joseph had dreams, but never knew about the timing or the fulfillment. How much space was between those dreams and the fulfillment, for he became the savior of the world? He just just trusted in the character of the God who gave him the original revelation. (laughs) Just as Jews can look on the lives of the patriarchs and see Joseph raised to the highest office and seen Mm -hmm. as Savior, so can the whole world look upon the king of the Jews, now glorified. Mm
4: -hmm.
0: While we do not know the time or the date of the restoration of the kingdom to Israel, we do know that it will happen. Just as surely as Joseph ruled Egypt and Jesus is now glorified.
1: So our next slide should be familiar to you. But it's going to carry a greater understanding from this teaching forward. You guys remember this slide? Oh This is the three heptatic periods as outlined in Daniel 9. You see our magical blue circle? It's over the time gap. This is where our apostles are standing in this period of redemptive history in the book of Acts, asking Jesus these questions. Now, among the many things... That must take place during the time gap displayed here. Is the completion of bringing the gospel to all nations. And then finally back to Jerusalem. The apostles are realizing they had the knowledge of Daniel 9. They heard Jesus in Matthew 28 saying you will go out into all nations. They heard Jesus in Matthew 24. And they are realizing in this moment that (laughs) Yahweh in his sovereignty has placed a time period between the resurrection of the Messiah and the end of the age to allow for all men to hear the proclamation of the gospel. Amen. They are realizing that it is not the time now for Messiah, for the boss to come back into the workplace. It's time to get to work yeah. so that when he comes back into the wo- workplace, there will be some work done. Yeah. You see, in the many ways, Acts is a call to action. We have a mission to complete that was first entrusted to the 12 Jewish apostles. And as a mysterious inclusion, we have been allowed to follow in their faithful example. And guess what? We also stand in that time gap. Our mission is to engage in that original mission to go into all nations and bring the gospel back to Jerusalem. You guys starting to get it now? Yeah. 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 All right. Let's move on to verse 8. But
5: you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem And in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth.
2: We could really speak all night on the power to be witnesses. Or about the call for global missions. But since the entire book of Acts is going to catalog the progression of this mission, tonight we want to focus on a point often overlooked in modern church circles. Namely, the centrality of Jerusalem as the beginning and the ending point for the message of the gospel. Our first passage is going to be Luke 24, 47. It says, And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So Luke makes the point clear that Jerusalem is more than just a place to start, but instead is the God-ordained origin point for the gospel to proceed from. The coming scriptures will make it clear that the message of the kingdom of God can
3: come out of no other place than Jerusalem. Yeah, let's take another one. John 4, 22. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Here, Jesus was his direct... As possible about the subject. The promise of Genesis 12 is that all nations would be blessed through Abraham. The focal point for this promise is the Jewish people and Jerusalem. I'm going to break the flow
0: momentarily, just emphasize the point. You heard earlier, wait in Jerusalem until you receive power. What happens if you don't wait in Jerusalem? No power. No power. No power. God will not do it any other way other than through His chosen city. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2 and 3 emphasizes this point. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. Mountains represent nations in the Bible. It's talking about Israel being chief of the nations. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say... Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Canada. No! (laughs) From Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The law cannot have any other origin point than Jerusalem. The promise of the nations being blessed always starts with Jerusalem. And then it radiates outward. Any form of the gospel that ignores or relegates Jerusalem or its people as no longer the centerpiece of Adonai's well, well, it is not a gospel at all if it doesn't include Jerusalem. Well, maybe the prophets didn't do it for you. So let's
1: check out the writings. Psalm fourteen seven. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Now, Psalm 14 was written by David, who Peter happens to say was a prophet. The cry of the psalm is for the same hope that always has been, the salvation of Israel beginning in Jerusalem. Oh, yeah. This would then, of course, radiate out from Jerusalem to the rest of the world.
2: Daniel 9:24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. The subject of the 70 weeks is Daniel's people, who are, of course, the Jews, and Daniel's holy city, which is, of course, Jerusalem. The entire prophetic message is about the process to see the kingdom of God ushered in. And it is centered on how it relates to Israel and Jerusalem's restoration.
3: Yeah, let's take another one. 2 Kings 19, 30-31. Once more, a remnant of the house of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. For out of Jerusalem will come a remnant. And out of Mount Zion... A band of survivors. Yeah. Yeah. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish oh. this. There are undoubtedly many historical near fulfillments of this verse. Yep. Its ultimate aim, however, <laughs> is salvation after destruction that begins in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Take Zechariah 14, 8-9, and it will build on what you just heard from 2
0: Kings. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea, in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and His name, the only name. St. Zechariah clearly displays that there is one Lord over the entire earth at this point. We're talking about the millennial reign. But there is one place that healing starts from? Jerusalem. Yeah. Even in the millennial reign, the process for restoring the earth begins with Jerusalem. So to ignore Jerusalem, to leave it out, to not emphasize the centrality of Jerusalem in the plan of God, well, it's to fail to actually convey the real gospel. His plan always begins in Jerusalem and ends in Jerusalem. Now, our next passage will specifically deal with the beginning and ending of this process in Isaiah 49. And Justin is going to cover two passages out of Isaiah 49 to help you get the picture.
1: And it's funny how this chapter has been giving us so much revelation. Yeah. Isaiah 49 and verse 6. He says, Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, Amen. that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Amen. You see, Israel has always been destined to bring salvation to the to the ends of the earth, beginning at Zion, which is Jerusalem. But that's not all that this chapter says. Let's look at verse 22. This is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I will beckon to the Gentiles. I will lift up my banner to the peoples. They will bring your sons in their arms and carry your daughters on their shoulders. Y'all with us?
4: Yeah.
1: See, Isaiah actually foretold that after the salvation had gone out from Jerusalem, Adonai would move on the hearts of the Gentiles, summoning them to carry Jews back to Jerusalem. Yeah. Our time allotment will not allow us to develop second Exodus themes, but suffice it, suffice it to say, the gospel message of salvation had to start in Jerusalem and must be brought back to Jerusalem. The story of salvation begins in Jerusalem and radiates outward to the nations, but the story also ends in Jerusalem as the nations and God turn their attention back to Jerusalem. You see, the central point of the unified vision of the one association is that the gospel must make its way back to Jerusalem. And we are responsible to see that happen. This is the purpose of the Balkan bow. And as you can see in Isaiah 49, this wasn't just a revelation that occurred in January in Eastern Europe. No, God had prophesied this in his word that it would happen this way. This is the purpose of the Balkan bow. It is an initiation point in the larger effort to see the gospel return to its origin point. The gospel went out from Jerusalem to Rome, and we will bring it back from Rome to Jerusalem. Wow. What an incredible
2: thing that a group like ours, a group from all nations, nations all over the world, has been entrusted with such an awesome task. Let's visit Peter's second epistle briefly before moving on. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 11. Since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace in shalom with him. As Peter makes the astounding claim that our obedience to the commands of God actually speeds the coming of the Lord. Yeah, you have more of a role in this than you think that you do. In many ways, this should cause us to be overjoyed in our daily work. Oh, oh. Yeah. And it should also cause us to take sober stock of our lives. Yeah. Yeah. Let us together collectively make every effort to spend our lives well as we participate in the plan of God and speed the coming of Messiah. Amen. Verse
5: 9 <laughs> After he said this, he was taken up before their very
3: eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. <laughs> This single verse has more biblical imagery associated with it than we could possibly cover in one evening. Believe us, we've spent hours studying it. But for now, we're going to take a minute to help you understand the associated promises. To start with, seeing Jesus on or in a cloud going up into heaven would have been greatly encouraging and greatly discouraging. And it would all happen at the same time. And this is what we were talking about last week in our overview. The cloud rider imagery is directly linked with the day that Jesus returns to set up the kingdom of God on earth. Which is a restored and glorified national Israel along with Gentile grafting. Yeah, yeah. We have a slide to help you with this. You guys see our slide on Daniel 7, 13-14? Yeah.
0: <clears throat> Keep the cloud rider in mind. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one The coming of the Cloud Rider is the moment when the kingdom of God begins to be set up in an undeniable Ooh, way. Come on. Once the Cloud Rider has set up his kingdom, it will never pass away. Israel will never be subject to Gentile oppression ever again. Praise God. And the whole world will bend the knee before him yeah. tribes, tongues, languages, they will serve him. Saints, this is the moment hope that the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles are waiting for, and they are looking for their Messiah to bring it about. But once again, the problem is that Jesus, he's on the cloud, but he's heading the wrong way. He's going up. He's not returning on the cloud. (laughs) Wait, come back. However, he did promise that he would return. Yeah, right. So Jesus spoke to them previously
1: in Matthew 26, 63 through 65. But Jesus remained silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living (laughs) God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of God. You got to picture this situation and how bold Jesus is being right here. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. Why would he say that? Because he knew what Daniel 7 said. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. So Jesus responded to the question of the high priest by stating that he would be seen coming on the clouds. This was understood by everyone in this setting to mean that he was indeed claiming to be the Messiah, the one like the Son of Man. This is because the cloud rider is the one who initiates the full manifestation of all that Adonai has promised to Israel in the kingdom of God on earth. To the apostles, this promise would be a great source of encouragement because they could know for sure That he would return to save Israel and set up the kingdom of God. On the other hand, for the high priest, this would be a deeply fearful thing. Because he is a representative of the unrepentant, unbelieving, and stagnant leadership that is currently over Jerusalem. Jesus had come to replace him and the other men like him with his apostles who were repentant and believing. So lastly, let's look at the vision that the Apostle
2: John had many years later on our next slide, Revelation chapter 1, 5 through 7. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. So John, toward the end of his life, was blessed to be able to see what the return of Messiah will look like and the ultimate manifestation of the hope for all Israel. In our context tonight in Acts chapter 1 verse 9, Jesus is currently on the clouds, although headed in the wrong direction. The apostles are still getting to see their Messiah on the clouds as a testimony to what he will do at the future time the Father has set by his own authority. In the next few verses, you will see two special witnesses affirm that Jesus will, in fact, return in the same way that they just saw him leave.
3: Yeah. So, for your further study, we've included a list of cloud rider passages that are by no means exhaustive, but they're going to aid your further understanding of it. We have a slide, cloud rider through the Tanakh. We encourage you to go and study these passages out. They're incredibly insightful and incredibly clear. Now, before we move on, there is one last gem that we want to share with you, and it comes from Exodus 24, verse 18, which says, Then Moses entered the cloud... As he went up on the mount, uh, yeah. went on up the mountain. And he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now, the last time that Israel's na- national leader went up into a cloud, yeah. the believing community, including Aaron, was thrown into turmoil and sinful rebellion. This is the whole golden calf incident. You remember that? Yes. Yep. But in a striking turn of events, when Jesus goes up in the clouds, the believing community, along with its leaders, begin drawing near to the Lord. Praise God. They're experiencing empowerment and beginning a campaign to see the nations brought into right standing with the living God. Amen. That's That's good. Why don't
0: we go ahead and pick up in verse 10 and 11, brother. And we're looking
5: at up into the sky as he was going, controlled. when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? <laughs> this same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into Amen. heaven.
0: There are a few things we're going to address here. But to start with, in your own time, we recommend that you read Isaiah 63 and examine the exact path that Messiah will take upon his Return. Yeah. Um, yeah. Aside from that, we want to examine the two men, not two angels, two men. Men. I don't yeah. know what church paintings you've seen, but the text says two men, men who are present to witness Jesus' ascension and are testifying to the apostles about the surety of the return of Jesus. Mm. So we're going to pick up together in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. Oh, yeah. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Yes and amen? (laughs) Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. To begin with this concept, the Torah lays down the foundational principle that matters of court proceedings or other serious items of importance must be established at least by two witnesses. Now, the Apostle Paul is going to expound on this concept in his letter to Corinth,
1: 2 Corinthians 13.1. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Wow. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So Paul goes so far as to say every, every charge in the church of God must be authenticated by at least two witnesses. Wow! Tell me, is every all or is it some? All. all. All charges, all matters, must be authenticated by at least two witnesses. This is important when you remember that Jesus is the living, breathing Word of God made flesh, as John 1.14 says. In a sense, Jesus is like the writings or the Word of God, correctly put into action so let's visit Luke 9 to see the two witnesses who accompanied the word of God made flesh on the mount of transfiguration oh Luke 9 starting in verse 30 and behold two
2: men were talking with him Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure that's an interesting word study which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So at the very time that Jesus is transfigured and his glory was revealed, there were two men that the Father had appointed to be witnesses of the event. The first one being Moses, who represents the law consistently through the biblical narrative, and the second being Elijah, who represents the prophets and is said to be a precursor to Messiah's arrival. Let's read Malachi 4 just for reference here.
3: Malachi 4, 4-5. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great day, that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. These two men have a conspicuous connection in Scripture to the events surrounding the day of the Lord and preparation for his arrivals. Let's move to the resurrection of Jesus in Luke 24, 4-6.
0: Picking up in verse 4. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men Hmm. stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. So what we know for sure, church, is that two appointed witnesses in Luke chapter 9 were on the Mount of Transfiguration. Those two appointed witnesses were Moses and Elijah, who represent both the law and the prophets. Now moving forward, we know for sure that these two men have a conspicuous connection in Scripture to the events surrounding the day of the Lord and the preparation for his arrival. It's at least worth considering that the same two men could be present as witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah. Since they're said to be a precursor before his coming, they were there when he was transfigured. Yeah. Maybe the two men are the same guys.
1: So let's reread Acts 1 about Jesus ascension. Okay. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men, two men stood by them in white robes. Once again, we know that Moses and Elijah were the two men who witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus. By the way, I hope you caught the connection. Law being Moses, prophets, Elijah, Jesus being the wor- the writings. Yeah. So we know that those two men, Moses and Elijah, were witnessing the transfiguration of Jesus. It is possible that they were the same two men who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. We know for sure that these two men have a conspicuous connection in Scripture to the events surrounding the day of the Lord and the preparation for his arrival. Hmm. I wonder, I really wonder, Hmm. if these were the same two men who not only witnessed the transfiguration, not only witnessed the resurrection, but the same two men who witnessed the ascension of Jesus and reassured the disciples of his return. Oh my! Now, tonight, we're not. We're not.
2: We can't. We can't do it. No. We can't not get into the, the events of Revelation 11. 11. As much as we want to, we just can't do it. We can't look at Revelation 11. We can't look at the two witnesses described in that chapter. But if we were to cover them, <laughs> we might talk about the fact that they are referred to as My two witnesses. I mean, very specific here. As in, the witnesses of Jesus, or the witnesses of Adonai. We might also talk about the fact that the miracles in Revelation 11 that these two witnesses do, well, they're miracles that are only paralleled by Moses and Elijah in the whole Bible. And they are miracles that they did during their lifetime. We're not really interesting. About that though, we're not going to do it. No, no, no. We need to move ahead to verse 12 because we're getting carried away really fast.
5: Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. The Sabbath day walk from the city. So we've
3: already mentioned that the apostles discussed the end of the age with Jesus at the Mount of Olives once before. This has happened. We will not revisit that concept except to say that the newly revived direction about advancing God's government, their recommissioning to the conquest of nations currently unreached by the gospel, and the knowledge of a coming empowerment may have reminded them that they needed to complete their 12-man government. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> in light of, Keep that in the back of your mind as we move to verse 13. When they arrived. They went
5: upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James.
0: So we're going to start with something fun. This is uh, not the first time an upper room shows up in the lives of the apostles. Luke makes mention of an upper room where the apostles celebrated Passover in Luke 22, verses 11 through 12. And say to the owner of the house... The teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Mm. He will show you a large mm. upper room, all furnished. Mm. Make preparations there. Yeah. Interesting, notable event in the apostles' lives that mm. happens to come in the feast schedule just before the present situation. Well, very interesting. In Luke 22, Jesus told the apostles specifically who to look for and mm-hmm. what to ask when they found the man. This resulted in them celebrating Passover and Upper room that happens to be the same kind of room where setting in Acts takes place. Whatever you make of the upper room concept, you should notice that Luke takes the time in verse 13 to write out each of the 11 apostles' names. Which is particularly important because Luke is emphasizing the fact that they were all gathered together, although they were still a man short of what was required. Let's do verse 14.
5: They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers.
0: So this is
1: a truly beautiful moment that we don't have a lot of time to spend on. But because of Mark 3.21, it says that the family of Jesus, including his mother and brothers, thought that Jesus was out of his mind. And now they're included with those that are constantly in prayer. yeah. Now, subsequent to his resurrection and ascension, they are gathered with the apostles in constant prayer for what Jesus promised. Amen. This is a good message for everyone who's waiting on family members yes. to be saved. Amen. Now, That's true. in every way, the life of Jesus is the perfect example. Yes. A short survey of his adult interactions with his family will quickly teach you that the best testimony that you can give your family is is to stay about your father's business together with the family of God. Man, that's good. Now, on another note, and one that should be patently obvious, Mary was not a perpetual virgin. What? Are you serious? Jesus had brothers. (laughs) Mary was not a perpetual virgin, as about one-fifth of the world's population believes. Mary was a virgin at Jesus' conception as well as throughout her pregnancy with Jesus, but not after that, because Jesus had brothers. She wasn't after that, much to her and Joseph's happiness. (laughs) Could you imagine getting married and then waiting nine months and six weeks, Juan? (laughs) Wouldn't you be happy that your wife is not a perpetual virgin? Let's move to verse 15. Peter
2: stood up among the believers, a group
1: numbering about <laughs> So right now in our
2: teaching, it's going to be necessary to visit some of the historical backdrop before we continue. Because there are some connections that you have likely never heard before. Okay. To start with, you should be aware that none of these numbers, like the 120 in the upper room, or the 12 apostles, are coincidental. Yes. It's not just... 120, I'm going to throw a random number out there. 12 apostles, 12 sounds good. No, these numbers have been preordained in Adonai's sovereignty. We're going to go to Second Chronicles chapter 5 and verse 12, and we're going to begin our study on some of
3: these numbers. All right, 2 Chronicles 5, verse 12. Say there if you're alive. There! All right, you still with us? Yeah. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 12. All the Levites, who were musicians, Asaph, Heman, yes. Jeduthun, and their sons and relatives, stood on the east side of the altar, dressed in fine linen mm. and playing cymbals, harps, and lyres. They were accompanied by 120 oh. priests sounding yes. trumpets. Yes. After the completion of the Solomonic temple, but before its dedication, there were 120 priests of God, ...who were set apart to blow trumpets. These trumpeters, or trumpeteers, if you will, were a kind of precursor. They were a precursor announcing beforehand what God would do in his temple. You can revisit our Chronicles teaching for more information on the subject. But to give you an idea, even the side of the altar that they are arranged on is significant. And it points to a theophany-style event. Additionally, there are cognates used between this accounting and Chronicles and Acts, indicating that both groups were in one accord or completely unified.
0: I'm just going to do it quickly. So (laughs) the arrangement on the altar, the east side. The east side is how you would enter the temple. You've got to go through the gates of praise. Do you know what is just outside of that? Something called the king's gate. Yeah. So they're arranged around the altar facing a specific direction, that is the direction that the king of Israel, the God of Israel, would come through on. And the two one accord or completely unified statements. Well we have Ihad in Hebrew in Chronicles, and then we have Homo according to sound. <laughs> in Acts. They're literally completely unified, and there is one hundred and twenty trumpeters. Wow. Who perform the function of announcing something that is coming, facing the gate where the king comes from. For now, let's just go to our next slide. You can go back to Chronicles. So, 120, the precursor to fire falling. To start with, 2 Chronicles 5 and 13b through 14, they raise their voices in praise to the Lord and say, He is good. His love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud. That's weird. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord oh, filled be. the temple Amen. of God. 2 oh. Chronicles 7.1 When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. There are two things that happened subsequent to the 120 trumpeters announcing the dedication of a new temple. The glory of the Lord filled the temple, and fire fell visibly from the heavens. The connections between the temple that is the body of believers and the Solomonic temple are astounding. Additionally, they serve to show that this was always Adonai's intent, to fill his people with his glorious presence and to attest to it ...with fire from heaven yes. that could be seen. Amen. However, we will have plenty of time to expound on that next week when we cover Acts chapter 2. For now, just remember that the 120, well, they're not a coincidence. Instead, they're actually pre-ordained by Adonai and match the original pattern. So the second area of background that we need to
1: briefly cover is the specific number of apostles. At this point in the passage... There are, of course, only 11, but they are destined to be 12. Yes. We are going to begin with some of the plainest reasons why there must be 12 apostles and why 11 is just insufficient. Then we will move to a broader scope of God's ordained government. So let's pick up in Luke six thirteen, which says, when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 yes. of them whom he also designated apostles. The most straightforward reason for 12 apostles is simply that Jesus chose 12 because he wanted 12 and not 11. In addition to that, he designated them apostles because they had a function to perform in his kingdom. All 12 positions would need to be fulfilled to perform that function adequately. So let's take a look at Luke 22. Luke twenty two twenty
2: eight. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is very specific. The twelve apostles collectively form an extension of Adonai's will and his government. The kingdom is literally assigned to them in both their present life in this passage and in the age to come at Messiah's return. There are 12 thrones set up for these 12 apostles. And from those thrones, they will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. It would not be a fulfillment of what Jesus said to have only 11 apostles judging the 12 tribes of Israel with an empty seat next to them. This is true.
3: Beyond the need for there to be 12 apostles to fulfill the literal promises of Jesus laid out in the Gospels, the number 12 is intris- intrinsically linked to God's government. That's true. Yeah. Now let's look at a slide of Revelation 21 as a small sampling of a much large, larger <coughs> volume of passages. Revelation 21, 9-14 One of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had 12, 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. You see, Adonai's government has always been based on 12. Yep. And in the fullest realization of the kingdom of God on earth, it will be marked by 12 in every area. What is of the greatest importance to our study tonight is that the foundations of the kingdom to come have the names of the 12 apostles written on them. It's not possible possible for the apostles to move forward advancing the kingdom of God without completing their foundation. Ooh, that's good. A 12th apostle must be added to their number, and the selection of such an office is not something that could be done haphazardly. So I know I haven't been helping
0: us finish on time, but I guarantee you we're going to. So again, for your own study, we have another slide for you that just is a small representative of the government of 12 in the Tanakh. Again, you can spend a few minutes and go through these yourselves, and you will see from Genesis all the way forward a consistent theme. But as we keep moving, you will see the apostles interacting with the scripture and recognizing the moving of the spirit in an increasing manner. Yeah. There's a theme that will be built throughout the book of Acts, and it really gets kicked off after Acts chapter 2 in increasing fashion. Linton, read verse 16 and 17 for me.
5: It said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry.
0: So sadly, some of our brothers who labor under a delusion called once saved, always saved, or eternal security would like to make Judas never really a part of the ministry. We're yeah. never really in believing faith with Jesus, no. whatever no. that means. This is, however, proven demonstrably false by Peter's own testimony. Judas was one of the number, of their number, as in one of the twelve chosen men. And he really did shipwreck his faith. Yes,
4: yeah.
2: He was
0: a participator in the ministry, and he turned away into sin and hellfire. Ooh. We considered the merits of going down a scriptural path to outline why the concept of once saved, always saved, is demonstrably false. But after considering how plainly Peter just states it in the text that it's false, <laughs> it did not seem worthwhile pursuit for our time this evening. Instead, we want to utilize the rest of our time in more fruitful areas of discussion So continue in the text, keep in mind that Judas was an actual apostle and his actions meant that he must be replaced to fulfill the requirements of the government of God on earth. It is also of particular importance that the government of God is properly arranged in time for Pentecost, which is only about 10 days away. So let's get verses 18 through 20 and Justin will pick up.
5: With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong his body burst open, and his intestines spilled out. Mm-hmm. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. So they called that field in their language, Akadama. That is, field of blood. For said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms. May his place be deserted. Let there be no
1: one to dwell in it.
5: And may another take his place of leadership.
1: So as aided by the Spirit of Jesus, the apostles could actually see in the Scripture that the ordained place of leadership needed to now be filled in Judas' absence. He's quoting Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. However, a larger point that may not have been as obvious is that everyone in Jerusalem knew about these events. Wow! Did you catch that? Yep. Yeah. Judas' life and place in ministry was forfeited because he refused to repent and produce fruit. He went so far as to conspire against Jesus. Judas was judged for these actions, and it was publicly known to everyone in Jerusalem. What do you think was going through the minds of the corrupt Jewish leadership who also refused to repent, produce fruit, and who also conspired against Jesus along with Judas? When they saw Judas... Be judged. What do you think was going on through their minds? They would have been living under a fearful expectation of judgment. Yeah, true. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 5,
2: verse 24 on this particular concept. The sins of some men are obvious, like known to everyone in Jerusalem, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others, like the conspirators, trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. The sin of Judas came upon him quickly, and it was a warning to all in Jerusalem. However, the same sins committed by the leaders in Jerusalem of that day, well, those sins were trailing behind them, much like a haunting memory. It's no wonder that in the coming chapters, We see such an admonition against speaking in the name of Jesus. I'm sure that every time these men laid down at night, every time they put their head on their pillow, they were trying to rationalize their decisions to reject Jesus and to plot against him. But the memory of what happened to Judas would also be right there with them, haunting them, but also... Maybe be urging them toward repentance. Yeah. Verse 21.
5: Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism
3: to the time when
5: Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection.
3: Yeah. So one of the defining characteristics of the 12 apostles whose names were written on the foundation of the New Jerusalem is that they were ordained by God to have been there from the beginning. This was explicitly stated by Jesus in the Gospel of John. And the same testimony is borne out in the historical record of Acts as well as uh, in the epistles. Let's take John 15, verse 26 and 27. It says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from, my fa- from the Father, the Spirit of truth, Who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness. Because you have been with me from Ah, the beginning. beginning. That's right. So in many ways, the twelve apostles are a special witness. Because they personally bore witness to the events in Jesus' life. This statement by Jesus cannot be reinterpreted to mean. Because someone had a vision of Jesus. Or even because Someone saw him in the flesh; that they were that they were uh, there from the beginning. These men would bear witness because they had personally and physically been with him, and that from the very beginning.
0: We have a slide for you that will show you some of the historical record of the apostles testifying to this event, the witness of the apostles from the beginning. You can see in Acts four, verse nineteen to twenty, Peter is speaking. Or we cannot. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. It's not theoretical to it. Acts 10, 39. And we are witnesses of all that he, being Jesus, did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. John 1, 1 through 4 is the most ex- explicit. Here we go. That which was from the beginning, which we, as in the 12 apostles, have heard, which we, the 12 apostles, have seen with our own eyes. Just in case you didn't get it which we, the twelve apostles, looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Hmm. The life was made manifest, and we, the twelve apostles, have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, the twelve apostles, that which we, again, the twelve apostles, have heard and seen and proclaimed to you so that you too may have fellowship with us, the 12 apostles, wow. the governing body, those that he left to organize these things. Indeed, our, as in the 12 apostles' fellowship, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Yes. And we are writing these things so that our, as in their collective joy, may be made complete. Yes. Whew, come on. The clear historical record shows that the original 12 apostles served as a kind of apostolic witness for the generations ahead. This is, of course, great importance when you're considering the reliability of the Bible that we have come to love, trust, and hold in our hands. These men were a living, first-hand testimony that served as a guide for the believing community. In the kingdom to come, these 12 apostles will still serve as first-hand witnesses to the testimony of Jesus as they sit on 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. There is a shockingly large contingent of denominations that believe the Apostles made a mistake or sinned by not including Paul as the 12th Apostle or Apostolic witness. We love Paul as much as any other Gentile community, and we're all thankful for the work that he did. However, the idea that Paul can even be a candidate is patently ridiculous. He doesn't get born again until Acts 9. The apostles are obeying the words of Jesus who said you will be witnesses from the beginning and they're preparing for the government of God that has been entrusted to them. Because it is about to be clothed with power in just a few days and all 12 men need to be in that upper room. Come on. Let's hit verse 23. So they proposed
5: two men: Joseph called Barsabbas also known as Justice and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry. Was Judas left to go where he belongs?
1: <laughs> you know, you have to consider that for Matthias to meet the qualifications, he had to have been there the whole time with Jesus. Right. right? And yet, he was not originally chosen. Mm-hmm. Good word. Mm-hmm. The shocking reality is that Yahweh and his sovereignty will always ensure that his witness is present and his will is done, even if that means the first choice is not the one to fulfill the role. There is no way to know why Matthias was not chosen in the beginning. But what we do know is that when the need arose, he stepped up to fulfill the will of God. Now, on a personal level, we know many men who had great callings and were supremely talented, but failed to continue in the faith. As a result, we are doing their work for them. Yeah. We may not have been the first choice, That's right. yeah. but we're doing a first choice hey. job. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Yeah.
1: You see, if a man fails to answer the call to global missions, Adonai will not leave that nation without a witness. But it does mean that another man will have to shoulder the workload. It is quite possible that Judas was more gifted or talented. But at the end of the day, what mattered was that Matthias was willing and he stood under the tension the entire way. As we contemplate the work ahead of us in the Balkan bow, we say with all joy and seriousness, prepare your sons. The work of the gospel will need them. And if you don't raise them up, it will get done through the sons of other men. Yeah, that's true. But those other men will have to carry twice the workload do you do? because your generations were not there to help. Wow. But we know we're going to prepare our that's sons. Right. Amen. Yeah. Let's get verse 26.
5: Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles.
2: There are a bunch of misconceptions relating to this verse right here. But once again, it doesn't seem good to the spirit to utilize our remaining two minutes to address every wrong idea that exists. <laughs> the apostles are acting in perfect accordance with the law of Moses and the practice of Joshua. There are 12 special apostolic witnesses that constitute the government of the 12 tribes. And Jesus has just commissioned them Into a new military campaign. Come on. So let's read two passages together very quickly.
3: In our remaining minute and 35 seconds. This is Numbers 26, 55. Be sure that the land is distributed by lot. What each group inherits will be according to the names for its ancestral tribe. So here Moses wrote in advance of entering the land... The command that all inheritance among the 12 tribes must be taken by lot. In Acts, Israel is entering a new campaign to retake the nations for Jesus. But all of this begins with the 12 apostles who, remember, were not voted in or chosen by preference, but were instead divinely chosen by lot. And we just got to do it. We gotta read a proverb. This is Proverbs 1633. And it says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Oh. In this way, the apostles show great faith that if they divide the inheritance of apostle apostleship and the inheritance of the government of God, as Moses instructed them, then Adonai would work through it and bring about his will. Yes. Amen. Joshua 18.10 contains Joshua's
0: application of Moses' words. Joshua then cast lots for them in Shiloh, in the presence of the Lord. And there he distributed the land to the Israelites according to the tribal divisions. The historical pattern is clear, that any new territory or inheritance was to be divided by lot, And Joshua also followed Moses' instructions to the letter. Yep. The 11 apostles knew that they must bring the gospel of the kingdom to the very ends of the earth. They're embarking on a campaign that is very similar to Joshua. They also knew that the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the clothing and power, was coming in just a few days. So in the exact pattern laid out for them in the scripture, they cast lots to see who would complete their inheritance. Come on. Next week you will see that they do receive the promised empowerment. Oh,
4: yeah.
0: And then you will see that they do go to war with the powers of this age. Amen. Amen. They will start making disciples. They will start advancing the kingdom. Oh, yeah. They will start building an army that will be spread out across the earth and brought the gospel as far as us. Acts is our call to action. Yeah. Amen. 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 Yeah. Yeah.
7: We love our church. Yeah. Yeah. We love our church because it's more than just a country club. More than just a loose affiliation with hypocritical smiles. We're a family of sincere believers yeah. who always seek to have each other's best interest in mind, even if it costs us our very life. That's real. When you're thinking about the 12 thrones that God ensured were seated with men that had been there from the beginning. Mm-hmm. You can see that as a very unique, essential, and special role. That they would be the chieftains of governing the tribes of Israel. Names and men that stand in eternity. They represent those 12 tribes. We're covering the requirements of what it took to sit in one of those seats of the thrones. You know what man is not included as a candidate in that list? Luke. But yet we sit here tonight and we are diving into the depths of his record of other men's lives. Yeah. And has been richly blessing believers for thousands of years. Amen. John 15, 16 says something to all of us in reflection to Luke. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Let will just pause right now. Those of you who are sitting here as God fearing, spirit filled lovers of Jesus. You realize that you're sitting here because God chose you. He saw you from afar. He reached down and took you from that miry pit. He lifted you up in resurrection power, and you became one of His many convincing proofs. You have a role to play. There's not one person sitting here who has insignificance in the kingdom of God. Was Luke's role insignificant? Oh no. no. You make you appreciate the brothers and sisters that you have in this room that have a knack for meticulous detail and recording things in their one Yeah. <laughs>
4: That's
7: who Luke was. First Corinthians four twenty. They covered it tonight. It's right to the point. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. How did you get here? Was it from mere surface level conversation?
4: No.
7: Was it from a Super Bowl gathering? No. <laughs> Hell no. It was because you saw in someone else's life a demonstration of the authentic resurrection power that took somebody from death and brought them into life. None of you lack the many convincing proofs of Jesus' resurrection power. You know why? Because you're alive. Because resurrection power took you from a place of graven death and it put you on your feet and now you're more alive than you've ever been. Deuteronomy 4 has been a staple for many weeks. They started foundations with it. Did you make the connection in verse 11 when it says, And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven. Did you make that connection to what we're about to study in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost? But yet here, here's the charge for you. Neither you nor I were part of that 120 gathered in the upper room. Neither you nor I stood at the foot of Mount Sinai when revelation was given on Shavuot. The charge is this. When you speak, when you act, is it power that causes the fire of God to rise to the heart of heaven and the hearts of men like it did on the road to Emmaus? When you speak and when you act, does it cause their hearts to burn within them? Or does it pacify? Does it shade and compromise and lessen that revelation that was given on the mountain of God? You all have something to offer. You have the fire of God within you You have the testimony of a life that is now living and no longer dead. Don't back away from truth. Don't lessen the fire. Covering it with a grate or lattice. But let it be open flame. Let it burn bright. You're here because somebody... Let the fire of God burn in them to the heart of heaven, and it resulted in you being here. More than just your butt in the seat. It's resulted in your life being transformed and continuing to be transformed. Let your mouth be open wide with the truth of God's words. Let it offend as he puts his words in your mouth. Don't be scared to offend people. Be scared to offend God.
4: That's right.
7: Because when you stand at the Bema Seat of Christ and you're surrounded by these 12 men who have seen and heard and touched the living Torah of God and giving their lives for it, what will your life say in compare to theirs? Right. Mm-hmm. Will you deal with the lot that is given to you and live up to the full measure of what God has apportioned? I wasn't born in the first century, obviously. Neither were you. Can't place myself in that time or position, but what I can do is be faithful to the time and position I am given.
6: Stand to your feet. Pray with us. Mighty God, Lord, you who ordain the times and the dates, Lord, you have set out a plan. Lord, and we want to be those who will be faithful to see it completed in our day. Lord, that you might use us, that our fire of our lives might burn to the very heart of heaven. God, that you are able to keep us from falling. You are able to sanctify your people and empower your people. That we might fulfill your every good desire and your every good design. Lord, that the men and the women in this room would be not only servants but witnesses of who you are Amen. into this entire world. Lord, let us burn with your fire. Yes, let yes, us proclaim Lord. your word. Yes, let Lord. us proclaim your plan through the yes, gospel. Yes, yes. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.